Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf for the day, Masacha Beitza, daf Yud Aleph, page 11. Our daf conveniently has two Mishnayot, so we've conveniently divided the daf. I will take the first Mishnah, Yerdena, I know you'll take the second Mishnah. And we have here a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, as we've seen, you know, in the past several days as well. Beit Shammai Omrim ain't notlin et alei lekatseva lavbas. Ubeit Hillel matirin. The Mishnah begins with a stringency, uh, a more stringent approach, I should say, from Beit Shammai. He says you should not take a a pestle, like a, from a mortar and pestle, the the tool that you would use to grind something or to crush something up. It's often used for spices. It can be used for crushing wheat, right? But in this case, it says do not cut your meat on it. This is according to Beit Shammai, and Beit Hill allows it. Um, and then the Mishnah goes on. Beit Shammai omim notnin et or so Beit Shammai's second point is, when you've got the hide of the animal, meaning you've done your shechita, you've taken the meat, and this is either, you know, either it's necessary for your food or it's necessary for your korban, the point is that now you've got the skin of the animal, and usually, I suppose, people would take it right away, or as soon as possible, to the, to the tanner, to the people who would work the hide. And... The Bechamai says you don't take them right away to the tanner, the implication being that it would be Muksa, um, because he says you can't lift it, you can't even lift it up um, unless you have a kazayat of meat that is still attached to it, in which case I guess that's considered food, and then the the hot to its own right is just simply the thing that's holding the food that you can indeed move. But Behil says it is okay, meaning in both cases that it is okay. Like you can take the hide to the people who'll do the tanning. And that you can um, pick it up, even if it has doesn't have the amount of a kazayat of meat attached to it. So the Gemara continues here. It continues. The Gemara day have, introduces a breita that seems to contradict what we've got in the Mishnah. Tana v'shavin she'im kitzev alav basar she'asur l'taltulo. There's a the breita says that they agree, meaning that v'shavin that they both agree beicham and beihel. That if you've cut the meat that you need on the pestle, then you can't move the pestle any further on on yantif. It doesn't quite contradict it, but it does seem to be um, it does seem to be a stringent, um, a more stringent approach from both of both Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, which is not how the mission presents it. Right? The concern then is that the if the mux, if the if the pestle is really used for cutting the meat. And then that's something that you're no longer, you know, you hit the point that you can't do it anymore on Yantif, then then you'd have no use for that pestle. You have no use for the kli. And so therefore, um, you you can't handle Need it at the time. Amar Abayim Be'eli Aval Betabara Garmei Divrei HaKol Mutar. So Abayim says, we're talking specifically about a pestle. A pestle, and I have some pictures in my handy there in the Gemara, but it's really like the right. You have a mortar and a pestle. The pestle is the thing that you use to to crush. Specifically used for in this case, you know, you're talking about a large one. It's going to have a good good amount of strength. Um, but a bias is that when you're talking about a tabra, a tabra seems to be you, tabra garme, something that breaks bones, but it's wooden. Then everybody says that that's permitted. And then the Gemara says, Pshita alei tadan. 
So then the why the question is why would the Tabra be allowed and the and the Ali, Ali not be allowed? And the answer seems to be well because the mission itself specifies the pen Ali. And therefore, you can't think that it's okay because the Mishnah specifies that it's not okay. But something that isn't explicitly men mentioned in the Mishnah, according to this approach of the Gemara, seems to, it seems to imply that it would. The Gemara continues, Malu meaning the Gemara is now going to assess why Abaye needed to make this point, distinguishing between these two tools. Who had din dafilu tabra garme nami v'hai dekatani ali lodiacha kochan de beit hillel. So now we have to understand what happens is that really we could say what you might want are going to disagree with that same wooden tool that's used for breaking the bones also. And you might say that it's, you know, it's the same issue. The same way you've got this Eli, this pestle, you're going to have the same problem with the Tabra. But the, so the Gemara says the whole point of this Mishnah and of this discussion is to how far reaching the opinion of Beit Hillel, who says that, yeah, meaning you can move something. We're talking about things that are muxa, right? You can move something that is a primary, primarily used for something that is a sewer, and you still can move it, even though, um, uh, so meaning the point being is that they can, that you can use the, you can move the Tabra, but Beit Shammai, didn't think that you could use it for the purpose of breaking either, meaning there's still a dispute between Beit and Beit Shammai, but Beit Shammai is strong enough to carry Beit Shammai into saying, yes, okay, fine, you can move this tool, even on Yantif. And then, of course, we've got an, uh, maybe it's not of course, but we do have an Ikid version of the same Machlok, Ikid Amre Amar Abaye Lo Nitzrecha El Afilu Tabra Garmi Chadate so he says, really, instead of talking about this wooden um, anvil that was used for breaking bones, Abayah says specifically that if you're talking about a new wooden, it says here, uh, um, if you switch the taf with a shin, you get the word chadash, right? It's a new wooden anvil used for breaking bones, and that would also be permitted. And you might think that you couldn't use that because it's too sharp, too strong, and the answer is Abayah's Abai is making the point that you could still use it. Obviously, of course, this machloki continues, but as far as we're concerned, I think that the point here is, is to illustrate as, uh, um, disputes here between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai on the tools that are used within over the course of Yantif, or potentially used, I guess. To Beit Shammai, you're not going to use them at all. So uh, we're going to see a nice little tidbit about that whole machloket in the Mishnah that I'm going to do. Um, but again, I'm just struck by that this is really just a series of Mishnayos explaining all the different machlokas between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel around Hilchot Yom Tov. And it's pretty amazing and to it's see, pretty amazing how, fundamentally to see how, different how fundamentally different they celebrated, they celebrated it. I wonder, I wonder if it really had, meaning the same way that I can say today, we don't have this, you know, how many people, I know plenty of people who prepare all of their food in advance before Yantif, so they don't have to do any cooking on Yantif. And I know plenty of people who do some amount of cooking on Yantif. But how many people are like going out to catch their fish, to cut, you know, like to to tan the to to kill the the sheep, right? Meaning, so obviously we live in a very different world than the time of Chazal. But I wonder how many of them 
even then were really doing this. In the time of the Beit HaMikdash, for sure, they had Karbanot. But after that, I, I, I don't know. I agree with you about that. I was struck by was struck how labor-intensive labor it was to, to prepare pre- your food. Like, yes. it wasn't, you know, like, Shechting's labor-intensive. All right, I'm going to go on to the next Mishnah. Beit Shammai Amrim, Ein so, so this very, very, very short, short Mishnah, Mishnah Beit Shammai says, says you can't remove, can't remove the, shutters, the shutters, the precinct of a store in a festival, festival because, it's, because basically it's basically building and destroying. And Beit Hillel says, not only can you open them, but you can even replace them. And so the Gemara basically says, my tresin amar ula trisei chaniyot. So what are these tresin they're talking about? So Ula says it's the shutters of shops. So many commentators explain that actually these weren't like regular permanent um sort of stores, but these were more like on crates or wagons. They weren't actually buildings and you would close them at night and then they would open them um, during the day and even on Yom Tov so that people sometimes could finish getting things that they needed to get that they didn't get done before Arab Yom Tov, um, you know, before Arab Chag. And that's basically the machloket over what Beit Shammai and Beit Halal are about whether or not you can actually open and close them on Chag itself. And then Ula comes with a very interesting statement. So Ula comes and says there are basically three things who um, the Chachamim basically said were permitted, even though sort of the 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 initial action is maybe something that's not really allowed or not really something we want people to do on Yom Tov, but it leads to a better action in the end. It leads to a better outcome in the end. And what are they? The spreading of a hide, right, of an animal that was slaughtered on Yom Tov, right, so that people will, you know, tread on it, right? And that was, you know, again, that it's a type of tanning, but they allowed it because they wanted people to slaughter and and basically enjoy Yom Tov so that they would eat good foods, right? The shuttering of the, sh- the the shutters with the shops, right? Allowing them to be replaced because this way the store owners could still uh, supply food uh, for people who maybe didn't finish all of their preparation so they can enjoy Chag the way they should and that you could replace a bandage in the temple. So we know that if a Kohen has an injury, right? He would have to remove the bandage because there's not a lot of bichatitza. There can't be anything between the hand and doing the avoda. And if you wouldn't allow him, so he would remove the bandage, but we allow him to replace the bandage so that he's encouraged to actually do the avoda. Otherwise, if he wasn't allowed to replace the bandage, maybe the coin wouldn't want to do it. And then we have this fourth, fourth one up, Rachava Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Afa Chavito, Umatchil Bi'isato, Al Gav Haregel. So Rahava says in the name of Rabbi Yehuda that there was another one here, which is that if you have a chaver, right, which is basically, right, there are people who are very careful about making, you know, about everything with Tuman Tower, about ritual impurity, right? And he opens a barrel of wine, you know, or begins his to sell his dough. So basically all the people would come up to Yerushalayim, he can sell that on the festival. And the Gemara goes on to explain what that was exactly, that basically we assumed everything sold in Yerushalayim was tahor. Um, and, um, and, and then it goes on to say, that according to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda said he can finish it. In other words, he can finish selling the bread that was made from the dough and the wine from that barrel. 
Um, then the Gemara goes on to basically say, why does Ula need to state these opinions? Because basically all of these things were taught in Mishnahs. Um, but it goes on to give a reason for each one about why Ula needed to say something specific. So the first point I want to point, you know, say here is it's interesting to see that like the Gemara in a way wants to account for that an Amora cannot be repetitive for something that a Tana said. Like we have these Tanaitic statements. These were things that were taught before. Why does Ula have an Amora have to come repeat it? And so they give a reason for, for each one. But then finally, the Gemara comes to the last one, which was Rahaba that he said in the name of Rabbi Yehuda. And they basically, you know, want to say, but Ula, my time, lo amarha. Why did Ula not state that fourth one? And so it says, because he wasn't dealing with cases that were a matter of dispute. In other words, he only listed cases that were totally unanimous. He wasn't going to do ones that were sort of under dispute, that maybe someone agreed, right? And those were that the teaching of Rahava was the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, which means that some people didn't agree with him. So then the Gemara says, So they said, no, but these matters are also dispute. Because in other words, the three things that Ula listed all of those are machlokas between Beit, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. And Ula's basically teaching for a specific reason the opinion of Beit Hillel of things that were allowed to happen. So the Gemara is saying, how can you say these weren't matters of dispute? And here's a very interesting thing. Beit Shammai bimkom Beit Hillel ena mishnai. So it says when Beit Shammai basically teaches something, right, where Beit Hillel agrees, right, it's not really considered eno mishnai. It's not really considered an opinion. It's not really taught because, in other words, we know the halacha is always going to be Beit Hillel. And so, I like, in other words, the Beit Shammai, his opinion is totally, well, you know, that school of thought is totally rejected by halacha. So, in a way, it's actually unanimous. And I thought this was a very interesting way to view all of these machlokot between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. So, on the one hand, we're preserving the opinion of Beit Shammai. And I would encourage everybody to look in in Masachet Edred, actually, there's a series of Mishnayos that talk about why do we record a singular opinion? Why do we record some of these Machlokot? But on the other hand, we're also treating it in a way like it's a non-existent opinion. Of course, Allah is just like Beit Hillel, because we know that Beit Hillel is just always accepted. And so Ula, even if we want to say that the reason why Ula only taught these cases is because they're one where there was no disagreement, we don't sort of consider the disagreement of Beit Shammai and Beit Hello to be a real disagreement because the halacha basically always follows uh, Beit Hello. We know that there are some exceptions to that. So I, I thought this was a very interesting small little line that appeared here in the Gemara. I think it's I think it's a what do you call it like a sneaky small little line because to say that the machloket like the the pinnacles of an example of machloket right that is not really dispute because we know what the end game is is a really strong, I find this to be a very strong, very powerful statement. Yes. Yeah, so I, I just think, you know, th this is, uh, you know, just to pay, uh, just pay attention to this little line here, because I think it says something very interesting. But well, do you think that it's, what's, I'm sorry, do you think that it's not a machloket because we know what the end game is? I, I, that's basically what the Gemara is saying here, but I don't know anywhere else where we say that for any, and, and again, I'm intrigued by this because the source of Machloket really comes from Beit Shammai Beit Hillel. There's a Gemara in Yerushalmi that talks about that, that initially the only Machloket, we'll get to this in Chagiga, was over Smicha for a Korban, and then it sort of proliferated with Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel because they 
weren't um, is what the Gemara and Yerushalmi says, that they weren't careful. So it's interesting that sort of the source of machlokas is also treated as like not, a mach, not really a machlokas. I so, wonder also, we must be talking about generations, right? In the time of Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, the Beit Shammai t- people did the Beit Shammai stuff and the Beit Hill people did the Beit Hill stuff. Generations later, we today, you know, it, it is more of a theoretical dispute. I wonder if that's not the commentary of the later Slavim of the Gemara, right? The editorial process of the Gemara saying, okay, but now we already have a, a decision made, so you don't have to worry about it as a dispute. Uh, I think that's an interesting point also. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 